So today we have Dr. Sam with us. Uh, he, by training, is a infectious disease specialist um, and also a aspiring comedian and screenwriter. And we're very uh, lucky to have you here with us today, Sam. Thanks for having me, Kiav. Thanks for having me, Tom. I'm excited to be here. We're <clears throat> absolutely delighted. To kind of tee things off, Sam, I'd love for you maybe to just kind of reflect back on what were some significant influences or experiences. They could be experiences, they could be people, they could be an event, but a number of maybe influences or stimuluses that got you sort of on your path uh, towards your career? I'm from New Jersey originally, and I, um, and I had a really happy, I, I had a pretty happy childhood. I have great parents. They're still together. I have a really close relationship with them. I have a sister who's four years younger. I have a great relationship with her. And, um, you know, growing up, I really liked school and I had a lot of different interests and I was, I was particularly good at kind of artistic things. I was good at um, writing. I enjoyed reading. Uh, I played music. I, I, was, I played guitar. Um, but I was also good at the sciences as well. And, uh, you know, my mom, um, my mom is an English professor, was an English professor, and is a writer. And I think I got a lot of creativity from her and her way of seeing the world. My dad's actually a retired doctor. He was an oncologist. And even though he really liked his career, he never pushed it at all. I mean, he enjoyed his career, but when he came home, he didn't talk about it that much. And um, we would talk about other things, maybe what my mom was working on, maybe what me and my, my sister and I were doing in school, uh, what they were reading. And, um, you know, I came from a, a pretty, a really intellectual family. So my, the, my parents, I, I, and I don't think that this is that common, but when my parents, when I got into college, my parents' instruction for me was that really, quote unquote, I get an education. It wasn't, you know, take these classes so that you can get a good job or, you know, study finance so you can go into business or the best thing would be for you to do this. It would be, it was get a, a well-rounded um, education, a humanistic education. And, and I actually, I believe in that myself, but I was, you know, and I think everyone is like this. I didn't know that much about the world at the time. And I got a great education. I went to, I, 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 um, I went to Yale and I, I did courses and, in literature, in art history, in music theory. I took a playwriting class. I took, I kind of actually was all over the place to the point that I didn't even know what major I was going to do. And at the last moment, I just pieced together what I had the most classes towards, like my junior year, and ended up being an English major. Um, and, you know, the, the idea of what I needed to do after college really kind of, for whatever reason, didn't dawn on me until pretty late. And I was also really interested in film. I'd always liked film. I'd um, taken a bunch of film classes. I was almost even a film major. And so I got the idea in my head that I wanted to be a uh, 
a screenwriter or work in the film industry. And I, I worked in various film capacities during college. Like I was working on student films and I, uh, I, one summer I interned with the daily show with John Stewart. And then after college, I got an internship with a film production company in New York city. And I thought that that was kind of going to be my foray or start into the world of film and that I would, I would pursue that and work my way up and write a screenplay and become a screenwriter. Well, you know, things don't go according to plan because I really did not like that experience. Um, the company was not a good one to work at. The people were not friendly at all. Uh, they weren't interested in me. My point was that it wasn't a positive experience. And the internship ended midway through the year, actually the start of the new year. This was back in 2007, 2008. Actually, the, the, the role ended right around the time that the writers went on strike in Hollywood. So mm-hmm. it was like a particularly hard time for anyone who was breaking into film, especially if they were interested in writing. And then also in March of 2008, which was probably like a month or two after the internship ended, the financial crisis struck of 2008. And I was living in New York trying to figure out what to do next. And I had no idea... And I had no way that I knew how I would get a job. You know, I don't know. This sounds maybe ridiculous to a lot of people, um, but I, I didn't have much work experience. And sure, I, I had a more sheltered childhood. I didn't have to work. Um, but it came time to try to find a job, and I had all I had was an English degree, um, and that, in many ways, doesn't really give you that much. I mean on a personal level, it gave me a a lot and I, a lot of my personality to what I studied, but in the working world, an English degree is not going to give you what a a computer science degree can. And so the rest of that year was really, really difficult. It's hard for me to actually almost express how difficult it was. It was so long ago. You You know, when stuff happens in the past, you really forget how bad things were, but it was a crisis because I was like, how am I going to make a living in the world? I remember this is coming from a family where my parents, parents only know what they've kind of been through. So my, my mom went to graduate school and then when she finished graduate school, she didn't end up in her exact position, but there was a way to get a job from graduate school places that would hire and, a career path that could go from there. And then, you know, on a more obvious note, my daddy finished medical school. He did residency, then uh, he did fellowship, and then he got a, a job. So anything more unconventional that, than that was foreign to them. And they were very worried because they didn't know how to offer advice for someone who wasn't going down that similar path. And for the rest of that year, I tried doing various jobs. I, that's a whole other story in and of itself. I and I have funny stories from that with all the cover letters that I sent to all these places. And with like, I, in, if I go back in my Gmail, I have hundreds and hundreds of cover letters and resumes that were sent out to all these random businesses trying to fit my, you know, how you're always trying to cobble your resume to whatever it is you're applying towards. But uh, yeah, I ended up having various odds and end jobs. I bartended for a little bit in the West village. I was not a good bartender. It was my, I, I, I uh, sweet-talked my way into that job with no experience. 
I worked for Barnes and Nobles. I remember getting fired from that <laughs> from that position um, because I messed up my schedule. I, I thought I was not working when I really was. I worked at this company where I was like um, doing background investigation on hedge fund managers. I was worked at as a receptionist. This was all in a matter of six months, um, and it was very unstable. And I was, you know, I didn't know where to go and 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 without parental ability to kind of calm me down or say, Hey, you know, this is what your twenties will be about. Or maybe, you know, let's, let's sit down and let's think about what you really want out of career. What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Ironically, you know, you have these kind of conversations. I think back, like this is the point of guidance counselors or career classes that maybe I had in high school or things like that. And I always kind of poo pooed them. I don't know why. Um, I guess I thought somehow things would fall into place, but I don't know. But the point is, I didn't know what I wanted. And I was so distressed that I was searching for an answer. And it it occurred to me, okay, I was good at school. I always liked school. I wanted a profession where I could contribute to the world and do some good, unlike my experience at the film production company, which was just wasting money on terrible films. I wanted a stable job. And it was a combination of those. And, and I wanted something that required some rigor that mm-hmm. built on itself. Mm-hmm. That was one of the frustrations, though, I will admit I had with originally majoring in English. And I, I don't know if I would have majored in that if I had done it over, I actually really like math. So maybe it would have been math, but regardless, the, the, the issue with some humanities is, you know, you take one class and then you could take another, but does it really matter what you took before it? Does it build? And that's a strength of things in the sciences. Um, you know, one thing can build on the next. You can feel like you're building forward from what you learned previously. And I put together these arguments and somehow just the idea of medical school came up. It meets these requirements that I just listed. And my dad was a doctor. And just, I guess once this got mentioned or once it came up, maybe I mentioned it to my dad. And, you know, like I mentioned, like I said earlier, he didn't talk about medicine much in the house. It's not like he had ever pushed it, but he really did get a lot of satisfaction out of being a doctor and becoming a doctor was really his source of confidence. It gave him incredible sense of self when he went through the process. It gave him a skill that he felt he could offer the world. It gave him confidence. It helped make him who he was. And so when I mentioned the possibility of becoming a doctor, it seemed clear to him that it could be a really positive experience because it had been one for him. Hmm. And so, you know, I was desperate to get out of New York at this time. I wanted to be moving forward. And for a lot of people, this sounds, I don't know, I'm guessing maybe this sounds ridiculous. You know, I was only 21, 22, like you have years to go. You could figure it out. You could figure it out. Maybe, but that, you know, that, that wasn't the world I was living in. I, 
that wasn't the world I was, I, I knew how to exist in. And, um, and so I found out about post back programs. I think that was one of the reasons why I even considered medical school because I hadn't taken the pre-med classes in undergraduate. And the post back program is where you take the prerequisites after you've already gone to college. There was one at the University of Pennsylvania in Philly, which was right near where I grew up. So, and I loved Philadelphia. So I applied and I got in and I started in 2008. And that is really kind of how the whole medical process started for me. Um, as you can tell, I never thought about becoming a doctor growing up. It never even crossed my mind. I never liked biology class in high school. Uh, I never wanted to be my dad's profession. Um, but that that's how I got to that point. And I, and I think, and please jump in or ask questions if I wasn't clear, but I think that as even if you can find fault with or even if we could find fault with the path that I went down, I think that the arguments and the reasoning how I got there makes sense. I would echo that. It, it's, um, it, it's, it's very interesting. There's huge universal application. Um, our logical and rational brains want to think that this is a linear process. And one of the things that I've come to discover, whether it's innovation in business or technology or innovation in a person's life or innovation in any form, you have to go on a discovery process. You don't just plug one into two and it moves to three and four. It has detours all over the place for it to really develop into something transformative or substantive. And it's interesting as you talk, uh, your life was one of uh, discovery, which you can't do just academically. You literally have to go put your skin in the game and experience it and experience the confusion and experience the discouragement and uh, the successes and the failures. Um uh, I love this thing that clarity actually comes out of confusion. Clarity doesn't just happen magically i do think we have to go through a point of confusion to understand that we actually have clarity and i think your initial path and chapters really capture that oh i love that you said i couldn't have said it better myself and actually i didn't that kind of didn't even occur to me the well i i love that you yeah you can't there's something additional, not, not that I was living my life solely academically before that, but I guess in a way I was, you know, but I was in school and you're completely right. You know, you don't, that's not how you learn from the world. No. And you have to go through trials and errors. I should, oh, I, um, to put even more in context, the urgency of, of getting out of New York and my plight, which is also a, a, a funny tale, which is that, uh, even though, yeah, I was this Yale graduate, right? Uh, I, when I was looking for jobs, I was not able to find any jobs. And I, and I went to, there's this place on the Lower East Side. I think it's called Henry Street Settlement. Um, it's where people from the community who are really poor and homeless go for, to help with 
um, job skills and job applications. And I went there and I remember sitting in a room um, in a suit. There were homeless people who were sitting next to me. We were talking about how to put together a resume, what to do at interviews. Uh, I, I just think it's really funny. I didn't think I was better than any of those people. I thought I was like the exact same. But uh, I was it. Whether it's true or not, I the I, the concept that if I had not had the support that I had, that I, if I didn't have my parents, that there is easily a world where I would have ended up homeless. Mm. And uh, and yeah, so so that was another reason why. Yeah. So so that's. <laughs> I just I, I find it 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 was a it's these are some amusing stories I think interesting yeah indeed, indeed they are um so so I I, I enrolled in the post back at Penn in two thousand eight and this is a really interesting chapter in my life and I almost think of it as a little bit of a fantasy land because even though this was my start to the, on the path of medicine post-bac classes have nothing to do with medicine. Right. It's chemistry, organic chemistry, physics, math, and biology. And you can do, all, I did all of those and I liked being good in school and I was really good in the program and I, enjoy, I love physics and I love math. So I really like those classes. I actually didn't even like biology, which should have been a sign, right? I, that was the least interesting one. Um, but I was taking those classes. I was doing really well in them. I lived in this great house in Philadelphia with uh, what ended up being a mutual friend of mine and Kiev's, um, Eric. And, you know, I had a great social situation. I felt like I was moving towards something important because medical school was on the horizon. But I didn't really need to think about it. And so I did well in the program, and then it takes a while to apply to medical school. You have to take the MCATs and things like that. So after the, I did the program in about a year and a half, and I did well, really well in it. And then, but I needed to kill time still while I applied. So I got a job in an organic chemistry lab as a tech, and worked there for about a year. And then I got into medical school. I got into um, uh, medical school in New York in the fall of 2010. And at that point I was like, uh, okay, I got into medical school. I'm, I quit my job actually to go uh, live in Peru for three months. I got, a, I went down to Peru. I found a way to, I emailed some rant. I'd never been to Peru, but I wanted to go there. So I re- emailed some hostel and was like, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll bartend for you for free if you put me up. Um, and so they did. So I lived there for two months and then traveled around the country. And that was awesome. And again, you know, this was all, this is just life, but I wasn't in medical school yet. And I came back, and this was in the late spring of 2011, and summer hit, and it was, medical school was about to start, and it hit me. And Mm -hmm. what hit me was I, this was not something I wanted to do, really. I mean, it's not, it just, you know, this is something I wasn't, you're about to embark on something that you didn't really care about. Um, and I went into a depression and I've dealt with, I was diagnosed with depression, 
uh, who knows, maybe I even had depressive, depressive tendencies earlier than high school, but really it didn't, it was, it, it emerged in my sophomore, junior year of college. And I saw a therapist and was put on a SSRI and it was under control and it was fine. And, but then, uh, you know, this depression hit, uh, a depression hit before medical school, though a very organic one, which, which would end up making sense. You know, if you're about to start on this huge career, huge path that you're not passionate about, that's more than just depression. That's, that's like a, a true existential issue. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. what I done all this work, it's not, you know, what, I mean, I was on this path. It, it seemed too late. And if I express these things to myself or my parents, I mean, they would be like, and they would be like, well, you know, you tried other things. And, and aside from, I guess, just, and I guess they would refer to New York, which was, I tried various things, albeit a very brief stint. I mean, I really didn't try that much. I guess they also referred to things in college because I took so many different classes and had no idea what I wanted to do. So, and it's true, you know, that is one problem looking back. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I get bored easily. I have extremely high expectations. I I had a bigger ego than I should in the sense that I didn't realize you have to start at the very bottom in most things, which is below, often going to be below in some ways my capability or interests, but which is what life is often about. But I hadn't come to terms with that. And that led me to really not knowing what the heck I wanted to do with my life, what would satisfy me. So anyway, it was, the fall of 2011, I started medical school and immediately or a month or two in, I just, I hit, I, I went into an incredible depression. This is when the depressive episodes really were, I would say debilitating, but somehow I've never had to take time off. I don't really know how I did that, but I mean, I, I, I remember it was probably September of 2011 and just the, con- the the idea of studying nonstop for four years on these subjects that I wasn't really passionate about and thinking about how was this going to eradicate who I really was deep down because I didn't identify myself as what I was about to do. I identified myself as more of a creative person, I guess. And I, I remember being catatonic in bed, like unable to move. My mom drove up to New York and I was just sobbing in the bed and just somehow I pushed through. Remember there were days after I would force myself to go to the gym to get moving. I would go on the stationary bike. There was not, I don't think I've ever done anything harder than get move. Um, but because in at that point, I wasn't on rotations yet. You know, you're taking classes. You can miss them. You can. I was able to make. I did fine, or I, I I managed. Um. The the thing though. That ultimately ended up getting me through, episodes like these. 
and they became fewer throughout medical school. And actually, I ended up loving medical school in many ways was the friends that I made. Mm -hmm. I was put in um, student housing in a three-bedroom apartment in New York City. And one of my roommates who I was randomly placed with, John, ended up being my best friend and just a friend I will have for life and someone who is incredible and has always been so supportive of me. And people like him helped me get through my problems. And I'm sure people like him would also say other people helped them get through their issues. You know, medical school is hard for anyone. And even though there's a lot of red flags or maybe ambivalence about whether or not this was the right career move, I don't think that this is that unique in the sense that I'm sure that there are lots of people who end up going into medicine not because they wanted to, but because their parents really wanted them to. Mm -hmm. I know people who drop out of medical school or take a year off and must be going through similar things. And even if they're not, they're probably extremely overwhelmed by the process ahead. But people like John were there, and one of the great things about John is that he is he's not a depressive at all. He's the complete opposite. But he was there to kind of buffer the highs and lows that I would go through. Um, and so th that episode I told you about was the very first one. It got easier as I developed these very deep friendships. And I soon after that got plugged in with a psychiatrist in New York who was amazing. I've, when I look back on medical school, it was actually a good experience. And the reason it was a good experience, and this speaks to the problem with medicine as a whole about what we'll get into when we talk about residency and fellowship, was just the camaraderie with the people there and the friendships and the bonds that I was able to build. What that tells me is it almost doesn't matter, to some extent, what you do if you can be surrounding yourself with the right people. I think if I had ended up going into practice or going into residency with these same types of people, having these same types of fun experiences, who knows? Maybe I would still be doing it. But, uh, but I didn't have that after, after medical school. Sam, um, with your permission, I'd, I would like to just take a moment here and um, kind of acknowledge the courage that it takes to discuss this because um, my perception is that the culture in medicine is such that um, as a physician, you are not allowed to have feelings. Sometimes you're not allowed even to have normal biological functions, for example, sleep. Um, so for you to discuss this, I think is important for people to know how much courage it takes. And so um, I'm so impressed 
that you can be present with this truth. And I think it's going to help so many people to hear what you have to share. Um, one of the things that comes to mind, um, I was just uh, taking notes when you were talking earlier, was um, when you were speaking about your father, you said being a doctor gave my father confidence and a sense of self. It helped make him who he was. And I wonder for you as a medical student, if you show up and then you realize, you know what, this is not for me. I wonder if there's a component of a, even on a subconscious level, the sense of loss of self, that this is where I was going to find my path. It was clear. It made sense. My father did it. I'm going to do it. And now all of a sudden I realize I don't want to do it. Am I losing myself in this process? Is that how you felt during that time? It's funny that you mentioned that. That's the exact feeling that I would have. And that was the root of what would cause these waves of depression. I was, I felt I was losing myself. Wow. Because it's like I'm becoming something I don't see myself aligning with. Wow. But it was about the loss of self. It was about the loss of... We'll get into this later, but I, it's good to bring up now the five most important qualities that I think, or five of the most important qualities that I value in myself are creativity, humor, open-mindedness, ability to relate to people on a deep level, four right mm -hmm. I'll come back to a fifth those qualities are not in any way the most important of being a doctor nowadays or even maybe ever but and I sensed that but I couldn't articulate it at the time I've since been able to articulate it very easily now um, but that's what I felt like I was losing So I had many great experiences in medical school. I mean, it was there were we had the, lots of fun parties. I made the most of the city. A lot of great memories. Um, the subject matter wasn't something that thrilled me, but again, the human component with the people I I train I was training with was great. Now, there is an interesting fork in the road here. You actually might be able to say a lot of those qualities would coincide with being a psychiatrist. And Tom, I bet you would probably agree with that. So psychiatry, I think, actually had probably been my intent. And right now when I give this story, it might, I might actually be forgetting whether or not I thought initially that I was going to be a psychiatrist. And that might have made even more sense of this whole journey. In retrospect, I can't remember, but because I love the mind, I love ideas, I love psychiatry. My in medical school, you do rotations, different things: psychiatry, neurology, internal medicine. That's your exposure to the field and determines whether you want to go into it or not. For my psychiatry rotation, I had the misfortune of being placed in the inpatient 
jail inpatient prison unit, which is where they bring all the schizophrenics from Rikers Island, anyone who's committed a crime, but is worse than just a criminal, is mentally unstable, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. It is the darkest place, arguably, in the United States. One of them. This, This rotation was hell for me. And the issue was actually not even the patients, it was the attendings. These were cold, soulless people who, I, I came in there, I don't know, I, 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 I guess I rubbed them the wrong way or something like that. They ate me alive. They ate me alive. And... they would have me do things like you're not you as a medical student especially an, an early one you're not supposed to particularly dangerous patients you're not supposed to be alone in rooms with these types of patients so i had uh, for example i had time, i was interviewing a patient alone in the room he had taken in the middle of chinatown earlier that day he had taken out a machete and sliced his what and literally bit, decapitated his wife Wow. In broad daylight. I had another guy who was brought in. He was schizophrenic. He had raped his whole family and raped his mom. Wow. And so I was on this rotation and like, I was not doing well. And, but they, they didn't like me. And like, you, when you can't manage, like, you know, I, I don't know. So any, what ended up happening was they, like, I guess, gave me terrible reviews or something like that, and the clerkship director ended up calling me in and being like, I'm thinking about failing you for this rotation. At the end of the day, I decided not to, which was such utter bullshit. But going into this, you know, I had thought about being a psychiatrist. I didn't want to be a psychiatrist for psychotics and schizophrenics, which is an important position, but not one that I wanted to do. Some, I wanted to do something. I could totally have seen myself doing something like you're doing, Tom. Mm-hmm. But that eliminated that. That's your one shot. And even if I had still even wanted to, which I don't see how there would be a way, my grade was not good. It would have been an incredible uphill battle. That was my worst grade in medical school. So that eliminated that. And then after that, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And the default came down to internal medicine, which is what most people think of as a doctor. And what I thought of as a doctor, because my dad had been through internal medicine, and it is the broadest one, too. So I ended up applying for residency in internal medicine. And when you don't have any real passion or interest for what you're doing, you end up searching for other things to kind of latch on to. And what, for me, that was, I guess, was like trying to get into the most prestigious program I could. I was an average medical student. But, um, and I'm not going to name the name of the residency, but there was one residency I interviewed with that was more prestigious, more rigorous than the other ones. And I was like, okay, I'll do that one. Or if I can, if I'll, you know, if I match there, that would be my number one. So I met, I put that number one. I ended up matching there. And, um, 
that's how I ended up doing internal medicine residency and, and choosing my residency. And it was not something I was really looking forward to. I was moving away from my family. I was going to have no friends or no family down there. But I didn't know what else to do because when you do the match, everyone goes everywhere. There was no way really to stay with my friends anyway, which if I could have done, I would have wanted to. Um, but they, you know, my best friend John matched in Denver. My friend Andrew in in New York. My friend Sydney at Emory. So you, you couldn't. Uh, there was no location that I wanted to be in, and so I chose this. And um, and and. That's how I went to residency. And that was uh, summer of 2015. I find your description of your journey very compelling, the way that you describe it. Um, and I'd like to get into what residency was like for you. Yeah, this is where it's going to get interesting. And before we do that, I have a request. Um, I myself am guilty of this. Um, I think we understand other people insofar as we have felt what they've gone through. So when you describe a clinical depression, I think for many of our listeners, it's not only difficult for some, it's probably impossible to fully grasp what a clinical depression means and what that feels like. Would you just be able to briefly tell us kind of what that is what it's like to go through a clinical depression. Oh, that is such a good question. I'm so glad that you asked that because nothing infuriates me more than when, you know, I'll have told people what I did or say that I'm on an antidepressant. And they're like, you know, Deb, what about, have you tried this or what if you just go on a hike? Yeah. Or, uh, you know, you know, I don't know. It's, it's completely out of your control. It's in my family, very genetic, very, and so for me, what a clinical depression is, is a complete lack of interest and pleasure in life and a darkness that there is absolutely no hope. I am blessed somehow with, I guess, the deep conviction that there's always something living for and therefore have never been suicidal, but I've been everything but. And if I'd ever had a suicidal tendency, I probably would be dead by now. But it's it's a complete conviction, depression, complete, 100% that life is not worth living. That, that you, that, and other feelings that can accompany it, you are wrong, you are damaged, you are faulty. You can't get pleasure from the simplest things, the most complex things. Certain times it can be you can't really move that well. It's like just too 
think that's just like a chemical thing probably like somehow it's just like really hard to move just you don't want to move you can't and it's not in a good way wow you lose your appetite you cry you you cry a lot and not just not just mild crying this is deep deep painful sobbing you have no interest in dating and the idea of dating at this when you're in this is that you are so worthless and damaged that it wouldn't even be possible and some hyperventilating those are some of the things and and just a feeling of how are you even going to go on how can you go on you feel so there is no feeling worse than depression yeah i would i would echo that because if you break your leg you know that the you you know, you have an idea that there's, the pain will get better. But when you're depressed, you it like people who aren't depressed don't understand this. When you're truly depressed, you that thought is not possible to have that things will get better. Mm-hmm. And you, so you say the pain is so bad this moment, and I have to live the rest of my life. I'm what thirty eight and say I live to 80 or wanted to live to 80, you say, okay, that's another 42 years of this pain. How is that even possible? How can I even take care of myself? So that's what depression is like. So um, yeah. I, I am so fortunate that, you know, you are sharing this with us. I mean, it's so powerful to hear, and we're so lucky to have a clinical psychologist here with us. So, Tom, I would love to just hear how this is just sitting with you well i uh <clears throat> yeah i'm i'm humbled every time i process uh the story of somebody that is i have i went through it in my early 30s and the way sam describes it you know when you have an injury there's a there's a focused isolated aspect to the pain uh, but these deep, dark depressions are so encompassing that breathing literally becomes an exercise. And when something, it's one thing when something affects your physical sensation, but when it now <clears throat> takes you into a painful aspect around what you're feeling and what you're thinking um uh that aspect of it to me is is so so dark i've been sitting throughout my entire career and um i have pulled at the threads of depression uh in western society and particularly in the united states we have an unhealthy need to control things and when we can't control it we quickly pathologize it and then throw a very quick solution and we're masters in pharmacology and technology and i have i've been digging into this and it's one of those things 
depression is one of those elements that when anybody says that they understand it, I go, oh, wow, you are really lost. I think it's a very mysterious aspect. We're starting to understand elements of it. Um, I started reaching out into the global community to have a deeper understanding. And I really believe there's a story that has resonated through spiritual communities and philosophical communities. I think it dates back thousands of years. It's been contemporized, and we call it the hero's journey. And I really believe that it's the dark night of the soul is to be in that. And to survive it, um, it's it, Sam used this statement that since he didn't have um, he didn't have uh, sort of suicidal ideation, um, there was a piece of him, even though you know he couldn't maybe grab hold of it, but there was a piece of him that knew somehow intellectually that he would get through it, even though he felt like he never would, and. I think that there are many, you know, without feeling, um, without necessarily going through a suffocating, deep, dark clinical depression. I think that one of the things that we want to be able to do is that when we're in these really dark places, how do we surround ourselves with a level of support that allows us to navigate it? And I think that that is one of the things that culturally, particularly in the United States, that we have not been good at doing. We are terrified in this country of being uncomfortable. Mm. So the way that I describe it, without getting overly clinical, we have a profound fear we are uncomfortable being uncomfortable. So we don't know how to sit or hold space for people in this part of their life experience. And I would say that one of the things that I've been trying to do in my work now, which is stepping beyond just the, the Western approach to looking at the human experience and looking at a broader, more philosophical and spiritual approach, how do we hold space that allows people to drop into this darkness and go through the experience? And I think it's when we hold people back from the experience of these dark nights that they, it, they keep repeating. But if we can find ways to help people on this journey. And Sam's story is a wonderful example. Uh, so he would be a really wonderful catalyst resource to hold space for people when they step into the darkness. Mm. And you don't have to have an academic degree to do that. In many ways, I think that when people overly rely on the academics of something, they miss the mystery of the experience. And I think it takes great courage, great confidence, and a deep level of humanity to sit and allow people to navigate the darkness. But to what, what I realize when I'm sitting with a client 
that the most powerful thing that I maybe am able to do with them is not to pathologize what they're going through, but to surround them with a level of courage and a level of compassion that allows them to go through the process. I got a little bit on a soapbox. No, I mean, it sounds like you're right on point. I mean, those things sound incredibly empowering and supportive. One, I'll share one last thing. Um, I have been, you know, without, um, I, I am a, an individual that chose not, I love school and uh, loved my graduate programs. But I realized when I was choosing graduate programs, I realized that I wanted to actually be out in the applied science. I wanted to be out in the world, out in the real world really understanding the experience of things and not sitting by and intellectualizing and pathologizing them necessarily, but to deeply understand the human journey. And uh, one of the things that I, through my decades of experience, um, and I, I don't want to just isolate Sam in this, but my experience is that people that really go into these um that that have these really dark experiences frequently are very gifted individuals hmm. um, is the correlation that I have found. Now, <clears throat> there's lots of, you know, we're not talking about psychosis and all of those types of things. But uh, one of the things that Sam talked about, and I was referencing some notes here, um, you are an individual that uh, you were given a lot of gifts, and with gifts comes a lot of options. And with a lot of options comes choice. And inside of that, you also are somebody that has very high expectations. And one of the things that I have discovered, um, I am, I experience this. I have extremely high expectations. So it's also a setup for boredom and disappointment. And so I do think with these great gifts, and I don't say that with, there's no gratuitous flattery in it. It also requires, an, it, it requires, you're going to naturally go on what I call a very experiential journey. You're not going to sit off and observe on the sidelines. You're going to step right onto the playing field. And the only way you know how to make a choice or whatever is you got to go experience. You're a very sensuous, passionate individual, and you're very much driven through those senses. And as a result of that, not only are you going to experience the great joys of an expectation delivering, but you're also going to experience the deep disappointment and the darkness around its disappointment. Yeah, I think that's very accurate. And, you know, you mentioned, you just mentioned your, your affinity or how you were drawn to an applied science. And actually, I think I can tie that in with the point that you just made. And another thing that initially led me towards medicine, which was, I guess I sensed that I wanted something, an experience more applied than making a film at the time. Wow. Maybe it ended up kind of going a little bit haywire or totally haywire, but I wanted that applied experience. You know, I I do 
believe in the applied experience. Yeah. Yeah. It's very clear that that is a core. If I were to pick out sort of a core element that drives through you um, is you really need to really experience it sort of through all of the senses it there needs it needs to stimulate and inspire the intellect but if it also isn't stimulating and inspiring your heart i'll even use the word chakra um it's not going to deliver 100 percent. and it needs to have a certain degree of challenge and rigor inside of it because if it comes easy to you you probably wouldn't trust it as an example yeah yeah Tom, I just uh, wanted to just sit with that for a little bit longer, um, if you don't mind, because because yeah. these points that you bring up, um, they're very intellectually um, thought provoking. I mean, really, what I'm hearing from you, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that these gifts, the talents that one has, whether it's being driven or being a perfectionist or seeing the world in a certain way, some unique talent um, is simultaneously the source of one's um, kind of expansion in this journey of life and at the same time can potentially be the thing that crushes you. Is that, is that correct? Oh boy, Kev, that is just so, that's so elegantly <laughs> yeah. said, you know, uh, if you, uh, I'm going to try to not get overly philosophical here. Um, I went, uh, I was having, I was in the middle of spiritual crisis, uh, kind of early in my life. So I got into, did comparative religious studies because I was really struggling with toxic theology and Christianity. And, and as I started digging in and looking at the great spiritual teachings, one, uh, several things really popped up for me. I was really touched. And however you want to look at this religiously or spiritually, uh, with the idea of the majesticness of the universe is everything lives in paradox. Mm. Wow. <laughs> you know, we have the North Pole. The North Pole can't exist without the South Pole. Dark can't exist without light. If we look at bio, if we look at organic chemistry, it's just filled with polarity and, uh, paradox. Um, and one of the things it's talked about in uh, Christian teachings and, you know, um, probably get some pushback on this one, but I don't care. You know, the story of the tree of life was the idea that uh, with knowledge, the gift of knowledge came the gift of choice and the gift of choice comes with light and dark. And so one of the things that I have just I used to get geek out on this very, I think, intellectually and academically. And now for me, there's a simple thesis that runs through all of this. And it's this idea of people that do not live lived lives. Okay. So when you meet someone, you can go, oh my goodness, this person is living a lived life. Meaning that they are out there taking risk and they're living in the midst of the paradox. Wow. Isn't it fascinating how many people go through life and they do not live the life that the creator, the divine, the universe gave them. And so all of those gifts, all of those opportunities, all of those experiences waiting for them to participate in, they never participated. And so what they end up experiencing is a form of soul death. Hmm. Um, and so there is 
there is a, an, a majesticness when we step out and we start applying all of these things to actually a lived life. What is going to come with that is the sobering aspects of when we get lost in the dark and we really experience the pain of that, the loss of that, the ego disorientation of that, and the redemption when we find our way through it. And as a result of that pain, the gift, the redemption is is an expansiveness that happens in us a compassion that happens in us and a courage that happens in us. Now I'm going to tie this up here. We understand uh, if we look at the aspect of when a bone breaks, the healed part of the bone is stronger than the other parts of the bone. So it's a very interesting aspect of human physiology. What, what I have discovered in my work, and I would use myself as an aspect of this, is that when we have crushing moments, when we have loss, when we have moments of brokenness, and we're willing to heal, if we don't heal, then it turns into pathology. But if we heal, we come out of that more expansive more courageous, deeper capacity in our humanity, both intellectually and emotionally and spiritually. We do not grow without going through this loss. It is literally, scientifically, quantumly, spiritually impossible. Wow. That is incredibly powerful. Tom, um, another uh, question for you. I mean, um, you said that that everything lives in paradox. And previously, you mentioned that we have to hold space with the darkness to help the um, individual navigate through it. That right there is a representation at least for me, of that paradox that you've been wounded by something, but rather than forgetting about it, rather than sweeping it under the rug, we're going to come to terms with it. We're going to come face to face with it because that's the only way through it. That's, uh, that is so epically, epically universally true. And I would say that it is, it is, the place that we are wrestling with on a grand scale right now. And rather than getting overwhelmed with it, just being on a grand scale, my uh, training or my profession lends me to looking at the grand scheme of things going on societally and then bringing it down to how is that app apply to us individually. And I think that uh, I, we love to complicate things uh, and particularly here in the United States, because we're such a competitive, externally driven culture, we love to complicate things because one, it makes us feel more important and it feeds the ego. Uh, 
And we're, I think, in the midst of a crisis of that ego and all of that structure breaking away. And I know one of the things that I've committed to in my work is to simplify it so it's approachable and it gets people back on the journey. One of the things, Kiev, you just said is that uh, uh, somebody asked me once, if you were to say in one sentence, what do you do? And I go, I hold the creative tension of the human experience. And what we're talking about is the ability to lean into this creative tension, which is where the growth is. And so if we look at Sam, Sam is equipped now to be able to hold space for the creative tension of growth in what whoever that might be. He has massive capacity now to hold space as other people are experiencing. And I realize I used to think that it was my job to rescue and to be very heroic. And I realized, oh no, the simplicity of it is to have the courage to hold space for another person's authentic experience. And it's not for me to diagnose it or to give it a solution, but to hold space. Because one of the things that we know, Sam is living proof of this. He had to go on this journey. Nobody could, if anybody pulled him off this journey, he would have had to circle back around the block and get back re-engaged. He had to go through this darkness. And as suffocating, mind-numbing as it is or was, you understand when you look at the capacity of the man sitting in front of us right now. And so I believe that our work and one of the things, Kiev, you and I felt really committed to when we met each other is how can we be catalysts to support people going on a more robust and courageous aspect of their journey? It's fun. You know, Tom, I, I completely agree and I do feel like I am re resurrected a stronger and greater human than I was. That being said, it's like, and as did it have to be as painful because we haven't even gotten into it yet. Wow. Yep. Wow. Well, let's continue. <laughs> okay. So medical school like I said, I would overall say it was a positive experience. I mean, these incredible friends, I look back on it with just a lot of fondness. Residency and the first year of fellowship were just hell. And there was not a day. So my residency, I did internal medicine. That was three years. My first year of fellowship was another year. And, uh, and then I had research years that overlapped also with the pandemic where I was trying to deal, I hadn't sorted things out. So really I kind of had six years straight, maybe even almost seven, where I hated every single day of my life. It was really four years definitely straight. I hated every single day of my life. And we can get into that. And so I, you know, I started residency, this program where I did my residency I would, I would argue is probably one of the hardest in the country. Um, 
But even aside from that, I don't think that there is any internal residency or any medical training that's easy. And you could just say that this is just a typical probably experience. And my experience, albeit so painful, I imagine probably resonates with a lot of people who are going through or have gone through the exact same thing. So I don't think that I'm unique in any way. Because I came from New York and was viewed, I guess, maybe as having a little bit more experience with a fast pace of life, my residency put would put me as one of the people to start off in the ICU, the intensive care unit, during my intern year. Now, some people have to start off in the intensive care unit no matter what. Like, someone's going to start there. I don't deal well with change. And I actually probably, I to some extent, I've, I, I have some degree of ADHD. I know everyone says that. I was never, I could never uh, learn by listening to things. I always had to read them. And so if someone told me directions, I would usually always miss a bit of it. So when you're working in the hospital, that makes it really hard where everything is told to you. Not to mention, I had, or I've always had organizational difficulties. And I'll, I overcome that. This has always happened in my life where I was completely disorganized a mess. And then I would work to figure out some system. I would work like a dog to figure out like a perfect system for me. Then I learn it and I'm great at it. But these are not good things to have when you're starting in a really hard residency in the intensive care unit. Um, And when I started, so my, I started residency 2018, the summer, the intensive care unit, unlike, so there's ACGME rules where an intern is only supposed to carry 10 patients max. Um, at the, where I did residency, you know, they, the teams were one resident, one intern. And the teams didn't cap. So, like, you could have less than 10, but you could have more than 10. It wasn't as bad when I was in there. Apparently, then when someone was there before, like, a few years before, it, like, went up to 20 when there was, like, a bad flu epidemic or something. But, so you didn't have that safety in place, first of all. But second of all, even with the appropriate amount of patients, I was just overwhelmed. It was, it was hard. You were there, you did five days in a row or five nights in a row. You had then had like a day and a half off and then switched to the other. And um, I just remember, I was just shell-shocked. And, you know, you can say, hey, this is your fault. You know, maybe you went to too hard of a residency. Maybe you just had a learning disability or whatever. But, okay, sure. But I don't think that I'm that alone. I saw other people who had the same issue. And probably tons of people. Because... I know that if you at I ended up being a good resident. I mean, like I was very efficient. I was good. I was good. Like if you had ever asked an intern who ended up working under me, oh, did Sam? Would you have thought Sam had any troubles in intern? They would be like, of course not. But like, uh, that's certainly not the case, and I'm sure that's the case for lots of people. And. So the, with the one resident, one intern team, you would, as the intern, if you were on overnight, 
the resident would try to get some sleep if they could, and you would be just sitting there up, and you were trying to learn the patience. And I'm not doing this justice of how difficult it was. I can, of you know, I'll have to give other scenarios to really capture how stressful residency was. But what I would say is it was three years of just constant stress. I mean, every day I went to work, you, during residency and my first year fellowship, people who are in medicine don't really understand this. Some do. I don't want to discredit certain fields, but you are working literally nonstop the entire day. And so what I used to do to try to overcome in the past certain issues where maybe I was lagging behind, I would work harder, but you can't, you can only work so hard, you know, if so, so like I would be getting into the hospital at like 4am and then maybe I remember some nights like leaving at midnight and you're just working nonstop. I mean, this would extend into the second and third years. You know, we would have, when you were in the ICU, you would do 30-hour shifts. I had 30-hour shifts. You get in, you are working straight the whole time. Straight. Hardcore. And, you, you know, you don't go to the bathroom when you should. You forget to eat. Um. And if you don't have support, first of all, that shouldn't happen in the first place. That happens all over the country, I'm sure. It's, it, it's completely irresponsible, immoral, unethical, damaging. And in addition to that, even if that does happen, there needs to be appropriate support for that. So I, and I'll, I'll go into more examples of things that happened. Like, I remember, you know, there, there were routine weeks during intern year where I was pulling 100-hour weeks. So for six days on, that's over 16 hours a day. I remember one time I had to switch from one rotation to another one and without a day off. So I switched from one to hepatology, which is liver patients. They're, when you don't know much about medicine, these patients are incredibly intimidating. They're the, some of the sickest people in the hospital. And I was so overwhelmed and I wanted to know the patients well. The whole, one of the hardest anyone will tell you when you switch to a new service, it's like insane for the first few days because you don't know the patients. It's really stressful. So I wanted to know the patients. I wanted to, so I got, I remember I got to the hospital at 3.30. We were going to round at 7. Got to the hospital at 3.30 try to read up on the patients around on them. You have these lists that you print that have like some of the data that you give to the attending and that you like go off of on rounds. And because I'd gotten there so early, I printed mine earlier than I normally would have. Right. Because I was writing notes on it from the computer. And I remember on rounds, um, the attending asked, okay, because as the intern, you're supposed to present the patient. So I'm presenting one of the patients. He's like, what's the blood pressure? And the blood pressure wasn't there because the nurse hadn't taken yet. So it was gone there so early. I'm like, oh, you know, actually, I don't know. I, I printed this too early. 
And I, I, I really want to give the name of this guy. I'm not going to because he sucks. Um, <laughs> and I, I hope that that's some, I imagine he suffered in his life earlier. So, but what I remember him saying to me, I'm not going to be able to, so, I, and I'm not going to be able to recreate this experience, but he said, you know, why don't we just, he goes, oh, you don't know the blood pressure. Why don't, why don't we just let all our patients die right now? I so just having been there at three thirty, this was in front of nurses, a fellow, uh, my resident, and then he goes, "Do you know how to take a blood pressure?" Which is an absurd question. I you learn how to take a blood pressure first year of medical school. I I go, yeah. I'm, at that point, I'm stuttering. I'm just so humiliated. He goes, "Did you take the blood pressure on this patient? Well, why didn't you take the blood pressure on this patient yourself?" which is also an absurd question. The nurses take the blood pressure. You don't have, you're not going to take the blood pressure in your patients. Um, and I'm like fumbling and he's like, go and take the blood pressure now. Wow. And he made me do it. Um, and then I remember I came back and I tried to present for the rest of the rounds and I, I couldn't stop crying. <laughs> Um, and this was not this, I know this attending did many things like this to other people. I remember apparently there, I heard through the grapevine. I remember there was this one, um, intern and, uh, her resident who maybe were struggling a little bit or having a little bit of a hard time. I remember he fired them. He just fired. He said, go home which is just unacceptable. So anyway, so that's an experience. I remember I got a, and uh, I remember I did a 30 hour shift in the CCU. I'd been working nonstop. CCU is the cardiac care unit member. And, oh, oh, I should mention in these, at the place I did residency, when you're in the, well, actually in the ICU, there's no fellow or attending on overnight. So it's just an intern and a resident. Um, and then in the CCU, it was just like me as a resident and a fellow, but my fellow wasn't particularly engaged and he had gone to bed. Remember at like four in the morning, this young guy had gotten brought in. Apparently he was out with some friends and he suddenly dropped to the ground. They brought him in and he, he had a pulse, but he had complete anoxic brain injury. Like his brain was. They did, they scanned it and like it was completely destroyed from lack of oxygen, lack of blood flow. And I spoke to neurology in the middle of the night and they're like, this guy's dead. Like he's completely brain dead. He's never coming back. I spoke to a couple of people and I think, I don't know. I think I made the decision to like withdraw care that night or something like that which there was no rush I shouldn't have done, I guess. But the numbers people I'd spoken to made it clear. But, you know, still that's a risk. Like you would want to wait, right? But I was also delirious from lack of sleep. And I remember the next day the fellow came in, the different fellow came in, cardiology presenting on rounds. And this, this woman, like basically she accused me of killing him in front of the rest of the team. Now, and, you know, this brings me to a point 
um, with her and that attending I just talked about. Medicine, I, I realize people have two ways of coping with difficult things in life. Either they take it out on other people or they take it out on themselves. I have no tolerance for anyone who takes it out on other people. Unfortunately, a lot of people do, and it, I guess you can't entirely blame them because that's what the system does to people. Fortunately, I pride my, I've never, I will never ever take anything out on anyone lower than myself or of equal stature. I'll talk up. But anyway, that's the only way I can attribute certain things of how these other people treat other people. Um, oh, I should mention, I forgot to mention this. You know, in I mentioned kind of the ADHD. I was officially diagnosed with it, and I had a prescription for Adderall, which I didn't use. I don't like, I didn't like using it. But when I entered residency, I realized there was no way I was going to survive. I couldn't even pay attention or stay awake even if I wasn't using it. So I started taking it twice a day, unsupervised. And, I mean, without that, I don't know how I would have made it. I remember I would get up, pop one, then a rush of euphoria would come on about 45 minutes later, which felt great because I before that I hated, you know, I did not even want to face the day. I hated life. You come on, it would allow me to function. And so I was, and then I eventually somehow, I guess I ran out and I guess maybe I got a prescription through the student health there or, um, or occupational health. There was no time whatsoever to see a psychiatrist or a therapist, which is absurd. You know, I ended up seeing occupational health. Really funny story. The first time I went in there, I started talking to this guy. I started venting about how I wasn't sure I was in the right place. I was so stressed out. He started venting back to me as if, like, he was the one having the nervous breakdown. <laughs> I'm serious. I Like, no. by the end of it, I was like, I was thinking that I, I was the one who needed to give him a pep talk. But there was no therapy support. There was no time for it. And I know that a lot of people who went to my residency, I think, felt similarly. But it was a culture of... I mean, you, this is a, this is a very blue blooded program. Like you, not you want to be competent, efficient. You know how I mentioned those qualities that I valued in myself. The ones that are valued were valued um, in residency, where um, efficiency, knowing the answers organization I mean I wasn't particularly good at any of those and no one gave a shit about any of my other qualities so when you're not so not only was I not doing well I didn't even have my own qualities to fall back on like previously in my life, what I would do, I have a lot of different interests and I've 
what I used to do when I was younger is if something wasn't going well in one, I would say to myself, hey, at least I have this. You know, if I was playing tennis but then didn't play tennis well, I'd say, hey, at least I can play guitar. But if guitar wasn't well, oh, at least I'm a good writer. I mean, that's a, in meta, you think I had time for anything else? At least I was nothing. No one gave a shit that I was funny. And so, I talked about having these deep depressions, these like episodic ones in medical school. They were more episodic. I just entered a chronic deep depression in residency. One that I didn't have the opportunity to take account of because I was so busy and stressed out until six years later. And the effects that it would have on me would be both emotional and physical. Physical ones are really, I think you guys are going to be surprised about what I'm about to tell you because I don't think many people admit to what I'm about to say. So, When you're, so I would, the amount of stress that I felt on a daily basis was so insane that I developed the complete inability to relax. Mm-hmm. And I, it actually, that became physical. I channeled that into actually my pelvis. I don't know if you guys have heard of pelvic floor dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's typical for those who are listening. It's typically occurs in women who have given birth, who have strained a lot. Um, men who have received radiation for prostate cancer, but it also occurs in like soldiers with PTSD and people who have gone under incredible amounts of stress. You know, when you can't breathe properly and you're so stressed out, you channel it into your pelvis and your muscles become incoordinated and really fucked up. So I, I lost the ability to really have natural like bowel movement without like incredible amounts of straining, like laxatives and, Fiber, they that won't do anything because that's not the issue. So in resident, I mean, in intern year, I went ten days without taking a shit. Um, it completely fix your ability to have an erection, and the only f- cure for this is being relaxed, and also pelvic floor therapy. But that's only that's not going to do anything. You have to be relaxed chronically and learn to relax. So you're not going to be able to do anything about it when you're always working and always stressed. So other symptoms of that, it gives you urinary retention. Like you can't empty your bladder fully because your bladder won't relax, your bladder outlet. So like I would get these like painful spas. It felt like I was getting urinary tract infections. I remember I called it my PCP. I was like, I have a urinary tract infection. He got a urine on me, and it was there was no bacteria in it, so I didn't have one. I didn't really understand what was going on at the time, but yeah. So I lost like, and the ability to lose, you know, I lost completely. My my sex drive was completely obliterated, and my ability to experience pleasure became completely obliterated, and this would last for six years straight. And I wasn't able to start dealing with this until 
I started facing all of this stuff after I finished my clinical year of fellowship. My clinical year of fellowship was awful too. Six days a week for a whole year straight on call 24 seven. Um, some day. Yeah. But anyway, um, I remember finally I came out of that. I had time cause I was in my research year and I was started to face everything and I realized I hated my life. I hated myself. I was having panic attacks very frequently and crying. I guess I had come to this end where I guess it was supposed to be better. I guess I was supposed to now oh, start dating more. I, but how could that happen? I was not even interested in women, women anymore. And then I thought, even if I was interested in women, things weren't working properly. And it made me feel like I, I had become permanently damaged, that there was no hope to life. So having panic attacks, sobbing. And the pandemic hit, which didn't make things better. Um, and all through residency and fellowship, I mean, you're working, so you don't have any opportunity to have therapy, to have support. It's completely unacceptable. So first of all, medical training has to change because I don't think it needs to be that hard. It's tough. It's a complicated issue because you could argue, how do you train a competent physician? I became very competent but I, it's not like I want to practice. You could, someone could say, oh, Sam didn't want to be a doctor anyway, maybe. Well, hey, this is happening all around the country. Doctors are dropping like flies. My co-fellow in infectious disease, MD, PhD, great with patients. She just asked me how she can get a job in industry. She hates her job so much. The, the, there's no, times have changed, and it needs to get better and there needs to be support. I just want my program to know that it's one thing to be nice, which the people are, but you need there needs to be support. And it, it's big systemic changes. I mean, I am not the only one that this has happened to. And... I don't care that this is what you went through previously. I would never want anyone to suffer because I did. Sam, when you say that you're not the only one that has gone through this, I just want our listeners to know that is 100% absolutely the case. What you describe is, I would argue, what most residents and fellows go through. And I mean, when I say most, I'm being very polite and generous. Um, I would say almost all. And you trained at one of the most difficult and one of the most prestigious um, programs in the uh, country. So it, it sounds like it was particularly bad for you. And the theme that I kind of see here is one of disrespect, um, dehumanization, and humiliation on a in a public forum. 
And the thing that's particularly distressing for me is that um, when you speak with most physicians in training, the fact that they're physicians is the pride of their lives. And then you put them in this environment where they're disrespected, humiliated, and dehumanized by their superiors, by the people that they look up to. And that, in my mind, is a form of generational trauma that is passed down. And like you correctly said, either you take it out on yourself or you take it out on others. And I would actually argue for most, it's probably a, a combination of the two. And this cycle is just perpetuated. And it's a real shame that those of us that are sanctioned with healing the sick and the infirm have so much emotional and psychological wounding to begin with. It's a sad state of affairs. Yeah. And then for people who might also be like, oh, well, you know, this can be, okay, well, I don't, I mean, to put things in more concrete context, uh, the, um, the amount of money, time, and effort that I put into trying to fix these things is enormous. So I did. <laughs> so the road to kind of trying to get things, to figure things out when I was in my research years of fellowship involved finding a therapist. So it took me four therapists to finally find one who fit. Finding a psychiatrist, getting plugged in on the right medications, which I was refractory to, of course, because there was something more existential going on and a lot of trauma. I did two rounds of transcranial magnetic stimulation. What I don't know if people know what that is, but that's where they take a magnet and shock, literally shock your brain. I did two six-week courses of that where you go in for half an hour a day for six weeks straight and they shock your head. It's not a pleasant experience, but it's one of the most proven things for refractory depression. Helped a little bit. I did that separated by a year apart because it stopped. It didn't work entirely. I did four intravenous ketamine treatments. Um, I did a lot of psychotherapy. And I did uh, microdosing of mushrooms on my own and a lot of soul searching. Also emptied my bank accounts paying for these things. Um, so I, th I just think that's helpful for people who might need a more concrete example of, of, of a certain toll. But, but on an emotional level, you know, I had developed a complete inability to experience pleasure on all levels. And when I tried being physical with people, it was like I was completely depersonalized. What's funny is, Tom, we talk, you talked about kind of coming out of things with more expansive. Well, one of my problems with medicine is that this type of experience, 
I mean, you don't want someone to go through these experiences. But someone who's been through shit and who's maybe flawed in a little bit, you want that as a doctor. You need that as a doctor. I have this joke. I'll do a little bit of a bit where I say, hey, it's been tough uh, being an infectious disease doctor these days. Not because of COVID. I don't give a shit about COVID. I'm talking about condoms. Do you know how hard it is to look someone in the eye and tell them to use condoms when you can't stand using them yourself? So that's the bit. But it's true in that based on all the depersonalization I experienced, the complete inability to experience pleasure, I like developed this almost like phobia of using condoms and other self-harming behaviors. And so, you know, I one of the main things as an infectious disease doctor, when you're seeing patients, well, I for one know that just saying, hey, you should be using condoms is not doesn't work okay and it's not and yet the medical system only wants these squeaky clean party line suck-ups you know my residency the people my residency chooses for chiefs are the ones who fly through with a smile on their face and you know maybe i'm selling them a little short maybe they're suffering inside too but these are people they sing the party line. They're not people who know how to relate to people with real problems. I mean, when I was during my intern year, one of the four chiefs was like, who's not likable and just not someone you, you wanted to talk about your issues with. And shouldn't that, isn't the type of person that I'm referring to someone who you would want to be in a position to lean on? I mean, obviously you want someone who's responsible who can do the job, but you know, the person who's going to be able to motivate, who's going to be able to rescue the people who are suffering is not going to be that goody two shoes. I think, uh, you know, the more that I talk about this, I, it, yeah, Kiev, I'm glad you emphasize that this is not an isolated experience that I have for maybe those who aren't in medicine. This is uh, for the audience out there who's not in medicine. Like, I think this is probably par for the course. You know, the um, statement that you just made, the person that's um, going to rescue those that are suffering is not going to be the goody two shoes. I think there's a lot in that. And I think what that may translate to is that there's a certain reality that we all go through, which is the really the point of this podcast is to have the unspoken conversations that we all are having behind the scenes. There's that component. And then there's the mass that we pull on, that we put on in public, which is the exact opposite which is, oh, no, everything's perfect. Oh, no, I'm just going to, you know, cruise through and I'm going to kill it. Um, the, the statistic that I find absolutely fascinating was, you know, when I, when I was in residency, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to get into too much detail, but there was um, a suicide at our university. I'm just going to leave it at that. 
and we had grief counseling. And one of the things that we learned about, uh, and like grief counseling for like a few hours and then we're back to work. Um, one of the things that we learned about was that one of the last signs that you will see in a physician who's contemplating suicide or who, or who does commit suicide is the relaxing of their work ethic. Yeah. They will work themselves until they commit suicide. You will not even see signs. The last thing to go is how hard they work. That I think is a really powerful concept. We will literally work ourselves to death. And a lot of us are just pretending like everything's okay when it's not. Completely. Completely. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I mean, I would have interns who would be like, oh, you have it all, like, you're so good, you have it all together. Like, I was doing self-harming behavior, like, all the time. I'm not talking about, like, suicide. I, we don't need to go into it. But, yeah, I completely agree. And it's, it would have been in a sense, though, there's no warning sign. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, there are if you really know the person, but if you're looking, yeah, but on a superficial level, yeah, which honestly. which what the um, the people monitoring are doing, it, it looks like things are fine. Yeah, yeah. S- Sam, you took us through a very raw, um, and. I love you. You you gave us a deep contextual. I mean, you. This was very raw, very experiential, very much in our face, and it's something um, deeply needed. One of the contexts I want to pull out for the listeners and for our conversation. Sam just walked us through uh, the harrowing experience of going through the residency. This pattern is so insidious in multiple fields. It's not isolated to medicine. Now we're using medicine right now as a backdrop to understand it. And I think it is uh, probably one of the most vivid examples of where we see this. What it really highlights is something that I think is a really critical piece of work for all of us institutionally, down at teams inside of our relationships and in our individual lives. One of the patterns that we see is that it takes no courage whatsoever to take abuse that we've experienced and now go abuse other people with it. That requires no courage. I remember when I was in grad school, uh, my mentor, Dr. Laritz, I heard him say in a talk he was giving, he said, the bigger the bully, the scarier the kid. And it's fascinating, all of the unhealed people now in institutional positions of power that now are passing on this insidious form of abuse. And one of the, and so I want to come back to uh, the paradox. Um, what is really interesting, and I think particularly in the West, well, I think it goes on globally, but it's a very fascinating thing that I see in my work institutionally is that when we all of a sudden put credentials and prestige on top of all of this, it gives it license. 
So we think we're pumping out a better physician or a better this or a better that. If we literally dehumanize and destroy the person, but we've kept all of the technology intact. That's very fascinating. And so the courage and one of the things that we know about uh, the health of our individual psychology and, and uh, one of the really important things that happens inside of individual therapy therapy is that we go back to family of origin. We look at where these patterns started, how they got entrenched and how they got scripted in our lives. And so one of the things that is really important in this, and every listener could do this and whatever institution, whatever program they're in, wherever they're working, where, how does the script support the humanity and uphold a high standard of practice because these things can go together. So do we have to destroy someone in their residency to prove that they can be an outstanding physician? Could we build rigor and discipline and high expectations and accountability while we're simultaneously keeping intact the critical aspects of their humanity. I think we'll have to. Yeah, that, that is what we're faced. And it requires courage to get in the face of this. It's, it's very interesting. You know, we can see this in racism and sexism in all forms of injustice where it becomes institutionalized, culturalized, and then it becomes licensed. Mm. It becomes accepted. And we're at this critical juncture now, and your story really sheds light on it. Um, The courage now to really get in its face and illuminate it and courageously shine a light on it and call it out and 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 give truth to it this is one of the things that i would say has run through all the decades of my career when i'm standing inside the room with the leadership that has the authority the institutional power to actually make substantive and transformative change and I think right now, one of the things that you've exposed is how do we shine a light on this? Not to be punitive, but to change it, to transform it, and to stop the damage. Yeah, I think that's well said. And it's not to be punitive. I also want to clarify something. You know, th- some of the examples I gave were not the, maybe not the perfect examples in the sense that two of the examples I gave were about individuals. The program I was at, pretty much everybody was really nice. Most people were nice. Yeah. And those were just particular. The, that, yeah. that actually was not the trauma. The trauma was the work and right. the stress and the expectations of that with the dehumanization and without even being valued for any of myself. And... Yes. Sorry. I just wanted to clarify that. And I think you understand that completely too. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want, I want to be careful that I don't, uh, over talk this, but what you're pulling out in my work and particularly the decades that I've been out in the field of practice is how do we not wound and damage while we simultaneously challenge and stimulate growth that to me, that isn't a skill set. That is really how do I steward this process with another human being, the sacred process of leading them through this critical point in their development where I don't damage or destroy them, but I'm simultaneously challenging them and holding them to a high degree of development and performance. That's stewardship. Mm. Tom, I think that is a beautiful point. I just want to say how Tom and I first met at my previous place of employment. Tom was hired to come into the department for which I was the director for anesthesia. And myself and Tom and another physician that we were that had some struggles with staff sat down to kind of figure out what the problems were. When I first interacted with this physician, my sense was that there was a lot of, let's just say negativity, and I think a part of me blamed her. And Tom and I sat down with her. We learned about who she was, where she came from, what her childhood was like. By the time we were done with the conversation, I had realized that she is the way that she is because of the, product, because of the environment that she grew up in. Had I gone through what she had gone through, there's a very high probability I would have been the exact same way. So, Tom, when you mention not being punitive, that speaks volumes to me because if we truly understand why a system is the way that it is or why an individual is the way that they are, we realize that they are the way that they are based on what they've gone through in the past. How can you possibly hold that against them? And sometimes people are just adult versions of their wounded child selves. How can you blame that child? The only way out of this is understanding, communication, empathy, and a certain degree of love. I completely agree. And I think that that gets to caring about people on an individual level. Mm -hmm. and I think every person, unless they're a complete sociopath, and even right. then, even then actually can be understood. And so what that requires is the space and time and environment to get to know each other. But when you have that, then you can understand where that person is coming from and you can rectify things. The so, two of you just touched on something so elegant and I was even hesitating to kind of weigh in here. I want to just maybe shed just a little bit of light. <clears throat> I think one of the things that you've pulled out so elegantly and the way the two of you were going back and forth on is, is how all of a sudden we realize we're walking around and we're seeing all these injured um, highly qualified people around us. <clears throat> and one of the things we can get overwhelmed with all of the injury we see, 
with people in positions of responsibility and positions of influence and so forth. And Kiv, the, I, I like the example that you gave as we sat in the room with your call with the, with uh, with the, the staff physician. Um, we have the ability in these moments, and this I think is really what our journey is about, is to continually stretch and grow that capacity that we don't carry the injury forward. And so, you know, it's a really fascinating, fascinating thing when we, when we look at all living systems that when we break a pattern, the potential for recovery is initiated. Potential for recovery or healing has just been initiated. And it's probably one of the most powerful things that we have in any given moment is is how do I stop this pattern right now in this moment? And that is a choice and as a as a as a as a power that we hold to be able to not keep the injury in motion, but actually to raise the level of the interaction and it changes the whole chemistry. It changes the whole dynamic changes it at a mental level, an emotional level, a somatic level, a spiritual level. And I think that that is one of the things that we have is that ability on an individual basis to do this with another human, a team in the midst of anything that's going on, and particularly looking at uh, uh, a medical arena or a clinical setting, that that abuse can stop in that moment, we have that ability. I've described a lot and there is a lot of, of, of pain and suffering that I'm, I'm not able to capture in words. Part of it is that I guess the human mind's tendency, if it hasn't been too scarred is to almost forget. But I think I've given you an idea of what things were like. And, uh, you know, I we're gonna probably transition or pause here. Should I say that we're gonna pause here? Yeah, we're gonna pause here, and we'll come back in the future. But um, the to give a hint at what's ahead, there's a there's a there's a bright light at the end of the tunnel. There's a a turn for the better, and uh, I think that this story is gonna have a really happy ending. Mm-hmm. But I mm-hmm. hope that. Um, you know, I don't, I don't pretend to have the answers here. And the reason I wanted to come on and was just so excited by Kiev starting this podcast is what has always frustrated me is just the utter lack of transparency about the way people feel in medicine and what they're going through. And, and I've always been one to want to speak up. And I think that authenticity is so needed in all walks of life and it, it leads to greater things and particularly what it could mean for institutional change in medicine. And I want to be a part of that. So let's wrap up here. If you guys are okay, okay with that. Okay. And I'd love to touch base in the future and tell you about the rest of the journey, which is much more exciting. I want to place a question there that we will use Sam, you used the word authenticity, and it's uh, 
and it and it can come off very romantic. It's a word that gets thrown around a lot. It's being used in a lot of mindful. It's just yeah, been used yeah. a lot around the human journey. But when you really step back and you step into the power and the sacredness of that word, it means to stand in the truth with the courage to be vulnerable. Yes. Okay. So as you lean into your authenticity around this story, do you feel some redemption in being able to do that? So much. And part of this whole thing has been one. Oh, that's funny. We can come back to the five qualities. Yes. I think my fifth is my willingness to be vulnerable. Yes. That's my fifth. I have no problem being vulnerable and it's a strength of mine. And I decided I want to use it. And this is a way of using it. And my, because the most powerful things I've ever achieved have come through my vulnerability. It was certainly not something I was able to use during my training because vulnerability was, was, was frowned upon, um, thought little of, and not advantageous. But uh, vulnerability can lead, in my mind, to the true ability to help others. And that's, that's what I would like to use mine for. And it's, this process is about being completely vulnerable and, uh, and it's freeing in a way because what was so difficult this whole time for me before I came to revelations that we'll talk about in the next episode is that I was myself, my true core was stuffed inside. It was not out in the open. It was not being allowed to breathe or flourish. And the pain that I was feeling was also not allowed to be expressed. It was only when the pain was able to be fully acknowledged fully acknowledged as appropriate, not wrong, not something that needed to be changed was my experience and was completely justified and was just what I had gone through. Only then was I able to feel a fuller and truer version of myself, the person I was meant to be. So what we're going to be doing as we move into this next part of the discussion with Sam is really examining in a real and profoundly courageous way, the power of leaning into vulnerability. 